0: Storymakers. I'm Elizabeth Stark, and I'm Angie Powers, and this is Storymakers Show. We had such a rich and helpful conversation with the multi-talented Janice Cook Newman, author of a memoir and two novels, uh, an editor of the newly launched and hugely successful technically literate column of fictional short stories on CNET, and a leader of LitCamp. Janice's
1: newest novel, A Master Plan for Rescue, was actually her thesis project for her MFA from San Francisco State, even though it was her third published book, which I thought was remarkable. No less remarkable, her two previous books, Mary, a novel about Mary Todd Lincoln, and The Russian Word for Snow, a memoir about her experience adopting her child from Russia, are both still in print. She broke down the
0: importance of a strong, positive mindset, the world of big publishing houses in fear, and the joy of working with truly independent presses. On another note, for the
1: week of June 2nd, Book Writing World will be offering some free classes. If you would like to take one online or in Berkeley, please sign up for the Book Writing World mailing list at bookwritingworld.com to get more information. And how you can do that is right on the front page, if you sign up for my free course on editing your manuscript like a pro, we'll add you right there to the mailing list. So um, I look forward to hearing from you. And with that... Enjoy the show.
0: we start with saying welcome and thank you for joining us is really how we start. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for having me. It's delightful.
1: And, um, and we just check in about what we're each working on. So, um, Angie, why don't you eat start?
0: Well, I've sort of gone off the rails this past week with a variety of things that have nothing to do with writing, so always good to have that kind of week. (laughs) Well,
1: and I'm actually, I gave my, I just gave a a draft of my novel off to my writing group. And so I realized I've been trying to work on an essay and I do journaling. I, you know, I have my writing time in the morning, but really I want to lie fallow. Like I, I want to, I actually just want to take this time and I've kind of pressured them into having it be a very short window. So in less than two weeks, I'll be getting feedback. And I know there's a lot to go back in and do. So I'm kind of, also, actually, trying trying to go off the rails a little bit. <laughs> uh, Janice, how about you? What are you
2: working on? I, I'm firmly on the rails. Um, I I'm in the midst of like halfway through a second draft of a new novel. Awesome. Uh, so I'm I'm working on that, and um, I'm in the midst of you know we have lake camp coming up next month, like in less than a month. So I have been going back and forth with um, my commissary tell my bill. So <laughs> I've been doing that. And then I just signed Alexander T. to do a new story for Technically Literate. We just got a contract to do three more authors, so I, I just signed him. Awesome. So, yeah, I'm very excited because I've been reading his new novel, um, The Queen of the Night. So um, I reached out to him, and that's what's so much fun about that job is you you get to reach out to different writers and hire them to do that. So um, I've been wearing all three hats this week. You have. Yes. Now, what were you saying? What were you doing with like Camp? What was it? Um, well, the Camp, Camp is next week. And so um, it's up at Mycom's ranch. And so there's always, there's the fun part of it, which is reading everyone's submissions and working with the emerging writers and, and putting together the faculty. And there's the business part of it where we, you know, have to put you know, something like 60 people up at the ranch and, and deal with the bill. <laughs> Oh, yes. oh, oh, that. The this bill. is the week the bill comes in. <laughs> got it <laughs> I'm always afraid
1: to look at it <laughs> that's so funny and now you started Lickham
2: that's right, right. and um, can you tell me about your inspiration to start it well um, actually I, I would credit um, Litquake, um, because they actually came to me and asked me to curate it because they were thinking about running it oh, and um, then initially it looked like it, it was not, they, they sort of did not want to do it. Um, I think they thought of it as possibly it would help raise funds for them. Mm-hmm. And, um, we all agreed that, that it would not. <laughs> <laughs> it, so in order to run what would truly be a great writer's conference. And I think Brent will tell you, you know, at Squaw Valley, you, you don't make money doing that. Yeah. Um, so so they said, I don't know, maybe we don't want to do that. So, so I said to them initially, let, let's do it. Um, let me do it. I will do it. I I just was up at my conference and I said, I, I see this. I think the Bay Area needs a smaller, more local writers conference. I said, let me do it. You guys can help me reach out to people. And I sort of did it initially in conjunction with Litquake and The Grotto. Mm-hmm. And that's how we launched it. And yes, it doesn't make money, but um, eventually it, it, I turned it into a nonprofit and we went out on our own. So this will be our fourth year and um, I think that we have three or four of our, our alumni have gotten book deals. Nice. Uh, yeah. It's amazing. And, and one of our writers is now signed with my agent, who is Ella Levine, which is kind of amazing. So it's it's really turned out to be very successful, um, and, and it's sort of spread out to create this local community for writers with our writing meetups, the Writing and Drinking Club, and the Basement Series, our reading series. So um, I'm very excited about how it's grown um, and <laughs> eaten up so much of my personal life, but it, it's, it's very fun because it's a wonderful local community.
1: Well, and I really want to get into your writing, but I just want to say that you're such a community builder. And I remember, um, I mean, we haven't talked much, but I think I, you know, talked to you at Ellen's um, book party, Ellen Sussman's, like a, a couple of years ago, and you talked about a writing group that met kind of every week or every other week, and and I started a small writing group like that, inspired by. Your, you know, I have I have another one that meets you know whenever someone has a whole book, but it's it's you know it's wonderful to have these kinds of supports at all stages of your writing career.
2: Yeah, I think I think that's true. I I did a piece for Lit Hub about finding your writing tribe, and I, I think you know what we do is so isolating, mm-hmm. you know, and and, and for, especially for those of us who do fiction, we spend all our time in rooms with imaginary people, and in any other context, they would lock us up for this. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so I think to have people who understand what you do, because people who are not in the writing world, have, they really don't get it. And so to have our own writing, writing tribes, I, I have a thing I, I do about once every other month at my house called the Roast Chicken Writers Club. And we meet on Sunday afternoons and write for two hours while I roast chickens. <laughs> and sometimes it can be as many as a dozen people. And then when we're done, we eat those chickens. And we you know, people bring food. And we have wine. And we just talk. And sometimes it's about writing and sometimes it's just about our lives and sometimes it's about the publishing business because most of those people have books. But it's so great to get together with those people and just know they're your tribe. Mm,
1: I love that. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Yeah.
2: So now your first book was actually a memoir.
1: Can you yes. Can you talk a little bit about the differences between memoir and fiction and moving from one to the other?
2: Um, yeah, um, I, I, I'm kind of self-taught and, um, so my memoir was was my first book. That's sort of how I learned to write. Um, I, 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 before that I was doing corporate comedy, all things. Um, and I, I, so I had adopted my son from Russia and I realized at some point that we had no story for him. Um, he, he was born in a Moscow hospital and three days later, his birth mother disappeared. And um, so we had nothing to tell him about his history except how we came to adopt him. And I thought I, I-, I should write about this. It was kind of a bold move. I had published nothing when I had <laughs> wow. this idea. I think I had, had too much coffee. But I also really wanted to write the book that I wanted when I was adopting. Because every book that's out there is either a how-to or these sort of schmalsy books about it was the greatest day of my life when I decided to adopt and everything was perfect and it's it's not really like that it's an emotional roller coaster and you you wonder if you will love your child so I wanted the book that I was looking for a book that was truly an honest book about adoption particularly international adoption which is very difficult and so I set out to write this book. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, no idea at all. I thought that's went, usually
0: the best way. I hear a lot yeah. of times if you knew ahead of time what it was going to take, you right. went on like parenting. Yes, <laughs> right.
2: And, and memoir particularly because now I say memoir is like you know therapy practiced on yourself by an amateur because <laughs> you have to write all the stuff you don't really want to write about. I thought I was going to write about all our adventures in Russia. I had to write about why I waited so long to have children and why I decided to do it after my mother died. These were things I did not want to write about, but of course that was the story. And, um, I credit, um, the writers, you know, the community writers at Squaw Valley and and going to that conference. I learned so much up there and, um, really I learned, Oh, I'm supposed to write scenes and dialogue. (laughs) Who knew? And I, I, I was so lucky. I think adoption was hot. Memoirs were hot. I can't believe I sold this book before it was done. Um, but I did. <laughs> and amazingly, it's still in print from 2001. I cannot really believe it.
1: That is that is truly amazing in this market, in this world.
2: Yeah. There aren't a lot of literary memoirs about international adoption, and I think that keeps it in print, um, but, it, but it's there.
1: And and you, I mean, you're clearly from a master plan for rescue. You are a master plotter at this point. Um, Did, did, what are the differences between plotting a memoir? I mean, other than the obvious ones that you're drawing on real, you know, real events, but you're still having to pick them and and establish causality, figure out the story in a memoir. And then, and then in fiction, I don't know if you're doing something similar or different in terms of plot.
2: Yeah. um, It's actually the same. Um, It's You have to have a character who wants something. You have a character who wants something and and is willing to risk a lot to go out and get it. Um, Of course, you can break this rule. I always tell my students there's no such thing as rules in fiction, except do not bore me or confuse me so much I put your book down. Mm -hmm. But there are certain, you know, tricks of the trade, and if you follow them, it makes storytelling so much easier. I, I just, I didn't realize how this until... You know, I could articulate it now. But, I mean, in, in, in the Russian word for snow in my memoir, I'm a character who wants something. I desperately want to get this kid out of Russia. And that is really the key to that story. And um, in all my books, there always is a character who really, really wants something. And if you have that, it, it provides an engine for your plot that is just unbeatable. To have characters like that. And if you look at all great stories, I think mean, that is in most of them. And it certainly makes your job as a writer a lot easier because characters who will go out and do things because they want something. Well, then it's a lot easier to think of what's going to happen in your scene. Mm-hmm. Do you
1: Is that what comes to you first, the character with desire, or does that take some digging?
2: Um, I, I'm one of those writers who, um, plot out their books ahead of time, um, usually in broad strokes, but I do. So I always, um, I'm, I'm a big believer in, um, John Truby's The Anatomy of Story. I make my students read it. They're, they all hate it. <laughs> I you. am among those. I, I struggle
0: with that book. I have to say, like. Because his
2: voice is so pedantic and annoying. Yes.
0: <laughs> and it seems unnecessarily convoluted a little bit. Yeah. So. Um, I, and I, I love
2: it. Yeah, so we're, I, we're- don't do, I don't do it all, but I'm going to say he's invaluable. Yeah. Um, and he's damn right about a lot of things, even though I have thrown his book across the room <laughs> multiple times. <laughs> but I always know what my character wants, and I always know what my character has to learn, um, mm-hmm. because if I if I know those things when I begin, oh my god, I save myself so much rewriting. And and even though a master plan for rescue took seven years to write that was a lot less rewriting than if i didn't know those things ahead of time do you have a
1: litmus test for a character desire that's going to that's going to work you know that i mean do you, ha- do, you do you find you, you have different ones come to you and when you're like this is one that's going to go
2: i mean i have to be interested in it mm-hmm. and i have to be able to articulate it in a very specific way and i have to be thinking oh yeah that's exciting and maybe a little crazy I think I think I'm drawn to characters who have desires that might seem a little off. Because that's more interesting in fiction. I mean, I think you should push against that edge a little bit. And if I think that yeah, because that that's gonna make that character do things that are might be a little nuts or, or might not be in the mainstream and might cause some bad behavior, well that's more interesting for fiction. So that appeals to me. You know, to want something like to be a model citizen. Well, how interesting is that going to be? <laughs> Who wants to read that?
0: Well, also, how do you know when you've achieved something like that? That's not a particularly like, you know, easy to say, yes, now you are a model citizen. Um, because so many things go into that. Whereas like having that concrete thing, you know, as you were talking about in your your memoir, you wanted to get a child out of Russia. We can tell when you're in Russia and when you're out of Russia. We can tell if you have the child and if you don't have the child. Therefore, that is a clear objective that we can follow and buy into. um,
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, in my middle book, the book about Mary Lincoln, her desire was she had an obsessive need for love and attention. It was so clear. Mm -hmm. And that, that would make characters go and do some really nuts of things. Um, and that was fascinating to write her. I couldn't make up a character like her. Um, there's just no way. She was like a gift, that character.
1: <laughs> how, did you, how did you find, sort of realize you wanted to write about her?
2: Um, so she fell in my lap and she was like my bridge book from nonfiction to fiction. I was in Washington, D.C. with my son and, and I write travel. So I was doing the story on the great museums of Washington. And um, every, I'm actually my son was obsessed with John Wilkes Booth mm. <laughs> because he was a boy, and John Wilkes Booth had a gun and a knife. And when you go there, they take you to the boarding house where Lincoln died, mm. and they tell this story how Lincoln is dying, and Mary's at his bedside, and the Secretary of War comes in and says, "Get that woman out of here." Yeah, so your face exactly. <laughs> That was me. It was like this visceral reaction of like, how dare you? Her husband is dying. And I, I, she brought, that brought her to my mind. And then every place we went, every tour, someone had something nasty to say about Mary Lincoln. And I thought, oh, she must be more interesting than I thought she was. Mm. And I went looking for a novel about her because I liked to get my history through novels. And I couldn't find one. So again, I had to write the book I wanted, but I, I got this biography of her, and she was fascinating. She was like a political strategist. She was also a shopaholic. Um, it was clear to me she had an affair while she was in the White House. As, like Who cheats on the great emancipator? <laughs> she, she was a spiritualist, like many people were at this time, but she went after Lincoln's death to live in a spiritualist commune. Then her dressmaker publishes a tell-all book about her. Like, how modern is that? And then her eldest and only surviving son commits her to a lunatic asylum. And three months later, she gets herself out. I thought, okay, I have to write a book about her from her point of view so I can understand what was going on in her mind while she does these things that seem crazy because she was such a smart woman. She was truly the most misunderstood woman in American history. Um, So I loved, loved writing the book about her. And that book is still in print (laughs) since 2006. Because people, I think women in particular, really connect with her. I think she's amazing.
1: So, okay, so how about for a master plan of rescue? How did that come to you? I love these origin stories.
2: So a master plan for rescue was really interesting for me. Um, While I was in Washington doing a little research for the Mary Lincoln book, I went to the Holocaust Museum, On my day off, (laughs) as as people will do. (laughs) And I came upon the story of the St. Louis, which was this refugee ship that left Hamburg with 900 Jewish refugees in 1939, and they all had visas for Cuba. And they get to Havana Harbor, and the Cuban president says, I have changed my mind. You cannot land here. So now they start to sail up the coast of Florida and they're so close to Miami that fishing boats are coming out and they, um, they have tourists on them and they're taking pictures of the refugees like they have become a tourist attraction. And they're sending cables to Roosevelt saying, can we land in America? And Roosevelt says, no thanks, <laughs> we have enough Jews. Yeah. And so they have to start going back to Germany. And so this story completely changed my view of America during the war, because I thought, okay, we were the good guys, and now we don't take these Jews. And I thought, I'm going to write a book, and I'm going to put a character on the St. Louis, because this is an amazing story. So it comes time for me to write this book, and my own son is 12 years old. And 12-year-old boys sort of live half in a fantasy world. You know, they're always like, they want to play act things. But they're also having this adult world, like they're fixing your computer for you. So I also want to write from this 12-year-old boy's perspective because it's so fascinating. And I had these amazing stories that my dad told me because he was a boy in New York City during World War II. So I want to take these two characters, this boy and this man who had been on the St. Louis. And I thought, what what would happen if this boy who lived in a fantasy world lost the person who was the most important person to him? And I sort of put these two characters together and and sort of out of their their shared grief, what will they do? They'll attempt this amazing rescue. So that is how that came together. I never thought I would write from the point of view of a man until I had raised the son. And that sort of gave me the courage to try that, to write from a male point of view. So that's sort of how that book came together, which is my most purely fiction book, even though it's historical fiction and there's many real events in it.
1: And I love how, for example, on the St. Louis, there's this guy who seems like he's pretty much lost his mind or he's, he's almost broken, right, is how the, the character, the narrator describes him. And, and yet he's kind of right in the end, right? And right. And, and there's something you do with, with him and with the, the, the 12-year-old Jack that, you know, where we don't know, like, at first we sort of, I think, oh, I know he has this erroneous belief. I won't say what it is, right? But he has this erroneous belief and I know he's wrong. But then he he has such he has certain skills you know not everything and he but he has certain abilities that make me start to wonder start to it starts to complicate what I know is true or not true about this kind of wacky stuff that you know that you talk about like like you love these characters who have to take these wacky you know actions or are going to um, so yeah I mean there's some way that you your investment in what could be possible somehow plays it sort of comes to be believable oh and you do this thing a lot where you'll hang up what angie calls or i'm sure she can come up with it but hangs a light on you'll hang a light on something hang a lantern on it right like this seems like maybe it's not believable or like why you want the reader might say well why did he tell that story or why this and you will just come out and say you know it might seem strange but here's what i think here's why this happened
2: yeah, um, so so that's the, the trick of this, this book, because it's got so much magical thinking in it on the part of the characters, and um, you always have to walk this fine line with the book because you want the reader to be as invested as the characters are. And so this is where my writing group was so useful, because they were my litmus test. I was always saying, okay, can you go with the character? Can you go with them? Can you believe it? Can you believe what they're doing? Can you believe what they're thinking? Because they believe it. They actually believe it. Um, part of part of what made this book so hard to write was that for a couple of years, I was always writing from Jack's 12-year-old point of view. And finally, I had the, the light bulb went off in my head where I thought, oh, wait, I can write from Jack being older and telling the story. And that saved me. Because that allowed me to hang that lantern and have him look back and say, okay, you know, this might not seem, you know, this might not make sense. But this is what I thought. And, you know, and here's where I was. And suddenly it opened it all up for me when I could suddenly bring, as I called, older Jack's voice in Mm -hmm. and have him look back. And I was not locked into that 12-year-old voice all the time Um, because I was doing this whole book in first person, which I have always been so comfortable in. And, you know, there's multiple first-person voices, but most of it is Jack. And, and so I realized I could write him older. Oh, thank God. <laughs> so I would still be writing that damn book. <laughs> it's interesting because um, because I have an eight
1: and a nine-year-old. And so um, so we're often reading books about 12-year-olds. And there was a way in which, as I was reading it and they were around, you know, I, I was imagining the parts I could I could really read to them and the parts I wouldn't necessarily read to them. And just thinking about, What makes a book an adult book, even though it has a a child narrator?
2: Yeah, that's it's an interesting question, too, because I get students who are doing YA and a huge amount of that has to do with subtext Mm. and symbolism, which are things you can't really put in YA books Mm -hmm. because young readers don't always get that. They don't always understand subtext. They don't always understand symbolism. For them, the book, what's on the surface is what's there. Um, And that's sort of the key and the trick to writing that um because everything has to be there on the surface mm-hmm. um and, and i think that's hard to do because as writers we like to bury those things we like to you know say oh i'm gonna put this hidden thing for the reader to get mm-hmm. um that's what we enjoy <laughs> writing to our smart readers
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah and one of the things I, I, i'll let you ask a question. No, no, no. <laughs> one of the things I wanted to ask you about because because the novel I'm working on now has multiple narrators some first some third and um and different stories some in different time periods and and so I'm doing this process of, of do I interweave the stories do I do a chunk you know where I go into one um and some of my favorite books do this like like the brief wondrous life of Oscar wow where you'll just go off with a character but they're related but maybe tangential and but thematically and whatever yours, yours is not when yours are more directly than thematically related, and you do have, um, like Jacob tells his story to Jack, how how did, when, and how did those, did you make those choices that, you know, he's not, he's not just telling his story in the book, but he's telling it to Jack. It's going to go here in a block rather than interwoven. How did you do that?
2: Um, that, that just kind of came naturally. Um, I did have much, I did have a section though, where, um, because this book was about storytelling and the power of story, of telling stories. So that gave me license to do that. Um, and there's a, a huge amount of freedom in, in actually owning that, mm-hmm. having your characters tell each other stories. Mm-hmm. So it solves a lot of problems that you might be encountering by doing that. I had a I had an earlier section where Jack's father tells him his story. I had 80 pages of Jack's father's story. Of his time in Ireland. Um, and people had much more trouble with that. I don't know why. Having another section of a character tell Jack their story.
1: Was that so, while well, he was, was that early on before yes. his yes. circumstances changed?
2: That <laughs> <laughs> was early on. And um, people had trouble with that. So I moved it and I tried to have Jack remember that, which is much harder to do in a big 80 page chunk. And eventually, my editor had me cut that. I know there's one piece left, right? Because There's one little piece left, because it needs to be there for the plot. But it was interesting, because I thought that like crazy. And then I said to myself, if I was turning my book into a movie, I would cut that. Mm. And um, it actually became the basis for my new book, with another character. Oh, nice. So I have a feeling maybe I worked on that book for so long that um, I started another book. But it was interesting because I had a conversation with my book-to-film agent recently who's been shopping this, and she said, you know, this is a hard adaptation because of the way the book is structured. And I I said to her, well, if I was writing a screenplay, I probably wouldn't structure it this way. Not that I know anything about screenplay writing, but I would structure it with Jacob's story and Jack's story starting parallel and cutting back and forth and because ha- and I, I don't think in a movie you would do it this way where you'd have one character and then you would go and have the other character in one big chunk like that. I think readers are more willing to go with these different formats mm-hmm. that moviegoers are not. I just think readers are more sophisticated in a certain way and they, they're willing to go with whatever you give them, like Oscar Wilde, like, you know, whatever else you see, they're willing to go with it.
1: Mm-hmm. It's funny because we're probably the same people. But we might have be we might have different abilities
2: or expectations in the movie theater and in the yeah. we're different people when we're reading we're readers and yeah. when we're in the movie theater we're moviegoers and so yes. we're different people then <laughs> yeah
0: yeah yeah well you know I am um, was looking back over technically literate and so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that introduce that a little
2: bit and, yeah um, yeah this is this is so exciting. Um, so CNET came to me, and this is actually, um, that came through Lit Camp. Um, so the uh, woman who who had the brainstorm for Technically Literate, which is CNET's new fiction series, she was a Lit Camp alum from our first year. And wow. she works for CNET. And she approached me with this idea of um, doing fiction on CNET's site. <laughs> and. So for like two minutes, I thought, well, that seems weird. Um, and then I thought, well, no, it doesn't. Because when you think about the Bay Area, there is actually this amazing intersection with, with technology and literature. Um, there are, we have here these two big cultures that are technology and, and this great, you know, literature culture. And they actually do intersect all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, they both live in the city here. I thought about my students that I teach. Many of them work, you know, for Google and Apple and Facebook and like all technology companies, but they're also always at Litquake events. They're also in my classes at the Grotto. You know, they were also coming, obviously, to Lit Camp. So they're not really separate cultures. They are a lot of the same people. Um, when I did, um, a, a, someone through me, um, Scott James, who founded the Castro Co-op he threw me this amazing book party that was full of people from the tech world. Mm -hmm. So there is a great intersection. And I thought, no, this does make sense. Mm -hmm. So they pretty much gave me carte blanche to do these stories. When we do these sort of contracts, three writers at a time. And they said to me, reach out to authors. And they get a prompt basically to write a fiction story of around 4,000 words And the prompt is it should have something to do with technology. But beyond that, they can get as creative as they like. And um, so the story could be futuristic. The story could be historical. So Christina Garcia's story takes place in World War II, which I loved. So the technology was batteries in a submarine, but they sort of changed a character's life. Yes. So I love this, and I love that I have the freedom so that I can go out and look at writers that I like and admire. And offer them good money to write fiction, which is like never happening in India. And um, that they chose me, someone who was a fiction writer, to edit the pieces. And then, you know, they were originally talking, well, maybe we would do photographs to illustrate them. And I said, you know, to do illustrations are more literary. And it was Wendy McNaughton who turned me on to Roman Moradov who's doing our illustrations and he's illustrated things for like The New Yorker and the New York Times. So he did amazing things. So like when he did Michelle Richmond's piece, the last taco truck in Silicon Valley, we had the little taco truck going and I showed
1: like, that to my yes. kids. I Isn't said this? i, I it's amazing. Yeah, I said, You're gonna remember this moment where I'm like, Oh my god, that picture's moving. it's you know, it's <laughs> doing like nothing to them, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
2: I mean it's it's incredible. And they've just now they're gonna do audible versions of the first two stories that can just be downloaded from the site for free if you wanna to listen to them. Christina's they did in Spanish. That's so so cool. Carolina de Robert is translated into Spanish Yay. for Cine de Espanol.
1: We had
0: her on the podcast, right yeah. yeah.
2: So Josh Moore's doing the third story, they're working on that now. And they're all completely different.
0: Yeah. I was gonna ask you about sort of your selection process because um, you know, Michelle Richmond is really, I think, one. Her tone is completely different than Christina Garcia's, but also, you know, she's contemporary. Christina Garcia is talking about Cuba in what, like, in well, in the '40s and then up to '57. Um, so it's
2: just, it's what, what is it that you, when you, you're like, okay, I, I dig this, or you know, yeah, I mean, I, I do them in three, so that lets me pick three people really different. Um, I pick writers that I've read and I like, um, but then I want them all, each story to be really diverse. So um, I I go and I think about, you know, I pick one. I don't ask them all at the same time in case someone is going to say no, that they're too busy. So I pick them one at a time and then sort of play them off against each other Mm. so that for the readers, the pieces will feel really different. So Josh's story is this very dark, funny story about um, an alcoholic writer who, who, who can't write and he falls off the wagon. It's, it's kind of bleak, but it also makes me laugh out loud. And it's very, it's contemporary and very different. Now, I don't know what these people are going to write until they turn it in. So I just have to judge by their other work. Um, I have Naomi Munawira is doing a story. So you know that's going to be totally different. And then a writer I like very much, Lauren Fox, um, whose novel Days of Awe I loved. And she's got this sort of funny hip voice um but her story um her novel was very heartbreaking also and so i expect her to to be very different and now i've just done alexander chi so i look for people who writers who in themselves are very different different both gender and sexual orientation and in ethnicity so they're bringing that to the table but i'm also looking at their styles so that they're very diverse. So that I'm hoping if I if I just mash all that together, that technically literate will just seem different. That the only thing tying it together will be the quality of the writing and the technology angle. I but, see an and, anthology in the future. <laughs> well they're well they are they have talked about that. They've talked about possibly putting them all in an anthology together. And we're hoping that the pieces come in quickly enough so that we can publish about every four to six weeks. But, you know, it's tricky because, you know, these writers only get about three months from signing the contract to turning in their first draft. I personally would not want to do this. I think it's hard. Yes. And it's amazing to me, you know, how they do it. I'm, I'm really in awe of them. Well, what kind uh, of notes do you give them? Well, I look at their pieces and it just depends on what comes in. Um, Josh's piece came in um, pretty Pretty close. Actually, we both lopped off his ending. First we made him work on it, then we lopped it off. Michelle's piece was long. We had to trim it. Um, but hers was very close. Christine and I went back and forth and beefed up the technology um, in it. Um, so we had a couple of rounds with making the the aha moment with the technology stand out a little bit more. So it always just depends what, what comes in. Um, it's hard because I, I'm asking writers that I admire so much. It's always like you're giving notes to people. It's not like giving notes to your students. It's like giving notes to writers you really admire. Um, But it's so much fun to work with them. I mean, it's such an honor to work with all of them. Um, So it's like the best job in the world, I have to say. It's like someone handed me the best job in the world for me to be able to go out and do this with these various writers. Um, I love it. It, It's really been great. And um, it's been hugely successful for CNET um they have been very pleased um they tell me that it's been getting great response and the writers say that they get a lot of direct response Mm -hmm. from people who you know find them on their websites and been sending them you know and it's kind of a new audience for them Mm -hmm. you know to get this whole other technology audience for them so that's been very nice for the writers as well
1: yeah. And I know I, I came to CNET not really knowing what CNET was because of the writing. So it's right. probably working both ways for everybody. Yeah, I think it is. I
2: think it's it's been this really interesting mix for both of them. So so it's it's not it's,
1: know what CNET is. I, I don't know. I'm in a <laughs> library somewhere and it still has stacks. I don't know. But
2: <laughs> Yeah, but you know, here's the thing, we all use technology and you now suddenly it's like they're out reviewing stuff. Yeah. We use and it's like oh right these guys maybe I should look at something. <laughs> yeah,
0: well
1: Angie's art. I just I I uh, delegate all of that to Angie. So.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: How about being edited? What's your favorite um, editing advice you you've been given or or edit that you've been given?
2: Oh gosh, um, my editor was was amazing. I had Sarah McGrath at Riverhead, um, and she was one of those like line by line on my manuscript. Mm. Um, she was excellent. And I mean, she wasn't like she was, it was general. So I can't tell you a general thing she did. She actually just went through my whole book, yeah. which was incredible. Um, before that, I worked with, I don't know if you know, Nona Caspers at San Francisco State. So this book was my thesis. Ah. I went back in my 50s to get my MSA and um the master plan was my thesis and i worked with nona kaspris there who, who many people in the bay area know she actually had me lop off my opening chapter because she said to me okay you needed this chapter to find the voice of the book it was one of the ones that helped me find the older jack voice she said now you can lose it and i was like oh my god you're so right <laughs> now i can lose it it helped me find the voice mm. But sometimes someone comes to you like that with that one piece of advice that changes everything, and that was one of them.
0: Mm, That's wonderful.
2: Oh, my gosh. No, I just,
0: I think about, you know, those notes that are like, yeah, you needed this for this thing, but now you can get rid of it. And it's like, you know, there's that part of us also that likes
2: to, you seem
0: to be very okay with Let it go.
2: Yeah, Yeah. you didn't see me fight for those 80 pages. (laughs)
0: But they can always be the next book, right? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, it sounds like we've hit that time in the podcast for Amateur Writers Borrow, Professional Writers Steal, which is based off the T.S. Eliot quote about poets. So just swap out poets Mm -hmm. uh, for writers. And so I'll have Elizabeth model for you what we're talking about, and then we'll ask you something you've... Like to steal? Whoa! Look at your coffee cup. It <laughs> <laughs> was to the Like I want to steal that
1: coffee cup. <laughs> it's normal
0: size.
1: That's good. I'm, I be, I believe in big cups. Yes. Um, you know, I actually, and I don't know if I can articulate it very well, but I there's actually something I want to steal um, from a master plan for rescue, which is um, you do a great job of introducing um, kind of a problem that. Is that like I as a reader knew okay this this is going to be a problem and the character's sort of actively in denial about it and it creates a suspense it creates a sense of danger what's going to happen is this what's going to go wrong and I didn't know exactly what was going to go wrong but I I was worried and I was worried for a longer time than I think I have maybe let my my own characters worry you know so there's that inclination like the you know the parent inclination to like come in and fix the problem and um and so I want to I want to use that, steal that somehow, right? To, to steal that kind of the delay of, res, of resolution. Well, that's a much better
2: answer than I'm going to give you. <laughs> it's a funny you, you guys have tortured me with this question for like a week. <laughs> oh, good. So so I can't think of, because here's the thing. There's no, specific, no one thing I steal because I steal all the time mm-hmm. um, from every book I'm reading. Because there's no way to read anything and not steal from it, in my opinion. When it, I read, I read voraciously. I am always have a book going. I read every night for like an hour. Um, and just, just
1: one book going, or do you have more? Well, yeah, than one? I can
2: only do one. Book. Ah. Uh, so my attention yeah. span is not that good, uh, but I don't finish them. It's like if I don't like it, I'm not finishing it. I'm too old. Why do you I'm not finishing the new books I don't like. And I have to say probably half the books I start, I don't finish. Um, but so here's, here's the thing is that you are going, when you're writing, you are going to steal from whatever you're reading, whether you like it or not. You are going to find that book seeping into your writing. So you need to be so careful about what you're reading, which means that, even if I kind of like a book, but I think it's badly written, I have to put it down because I find those like the bad writing is also coming into my writing. So I'm, I'm extremely careful about my reading. So I found like uh, sometimes I'll go back if I feel like I need it. Like um, Daniel Torday's book, The Last Flight of Poxel West, which I really loved and loved the writing. I read it a second time because I wanted some more of his writing to bleed into mine. I did that. Um, I, all the Light We Cannot See also tried to purposely let it bleed into my writing. And I try to be, try to always be reading books that are getting good reviews in places I respect and admire, like the Times, because I, I want to make sure that those writers are, you know, their styles are coming into my writing because it's going to happen. You are going to steal no matter what, what you want to do. And people who say, Oh, I don't want to read this because I'm afraid it'll affect my writing. It's like, why? Why in the world would you not do that? Why would you not let it come into your writing? How stupid is that? I mean, no judgment, but
1: <laughs> that's a great answer. I love yeah. that
0: answer. I mean, yeah. that's why we ask this question. Well, know. yeah, I know. I've I've heard a similar point of view, which was sort of like, so you don't want to be influenced by a master,
2: right? Right. It's there like, you go. Okay. Yeah, There's a more <laughs> succinct way of saying
1: that. Yeah. <laughs> um, How about you,
0: Ash? For me, I've actually sort of been reading a, a book about workflow. And one of the things that is happening in the book is they talk about sort of making intentional space for play. And I think the truth is I have, part of the reason I've gone off the rails is I've not actually made space in my schedule for intentional exploration. And, you know, when I first started writing part of the joy was, you know, the research and building worlds or just being in a place where I could absorb the world around me, notice things, and that would also influence my writing or or the plot. And I'm just not making time to be influenced as an artist. And, and that's sort of what I think of as an adult play, in, in a way, is to allow yourself to read things you get excited about and play, you know, mush them around with things that are unrelated and see where you come out. And your wonderful questions about, in curiosity about Mary Todd, right? This is a a form of play, which I think uh, I have not made time for. So my uh, stealing is playing. I love it. Mm. (laughs) So Janice,
1: will you tell our listeners where they can find you? Maybe all the places they can find you or
2: some of them? Uh, Yeah, I'm on the web at I'm um, JaniceCookNewman.com, and I'm on Twitter at, at Janice Newman. So those are like the main places. And then LitCamp is at LitCampWriters.org. So um, through there, we have like a bunch of stuff, all the, the stuff we have for emerging writers. And we'll put all book. of those in the show notes. And how about for Technically Literate? Technically Literate is on CNET. So it's CNET.com. And once you go on there, you can find Technically Literate. And so right now we're running, both stories are on there, um, both Michelle's and Christina's. And they're, oh, God, they look awesome. Yeah, they do. They're, they're
0: wonderful. wonderful. Do. I want I encourage everybody
1: to go check those out. Definitely check it out and check out uh, Lit Camp and check out Janice Cook Newman. Such a pleasure. Thank you so much for talking to us.
2: Oh, thank you.